For these and the many other sins we've done this week, we ask that in your mercy you would forgive us, cleanse us, and turn our hearts to you that we may serve you in newness of life. And Selah. Lord, your word tells us if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, hear our prayer and confession and grant us forgiveness and deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. The reading of God's word this morning begins in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to the abominations of the nations, whom Yahweh dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of Yahweh, of which Yahweh had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of Yahweh. And he made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. Then he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers. If only they will observe to do all that I have commanded them, according to the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given through Moses. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom Yahweh destroyed before the sons of Israel. And Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated Yahweh his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. Now after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate, and he encircled the Ophel with it and made it very high. Then he put the army commanders in the fortified cities of Judah. He also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of Yahweh, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of Yahweh and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. And he set, apart, set up the altar of Yahweh and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve Yahweh, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to Yahweh their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, even his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, behold, they are among the records of the kings of Israel. His prayer also, and how God was entreated by him, 
and all his sin, his unfaithfulness, and the sites on which he built up high places and erected the ashram and the carved images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the records of the Hosei. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house, and Ammon his son became king in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh, as Manasseh his father had done. And Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and he served them. Moreover, he did not humble himself before Yahweh, as his father Manasseh had done. But Ammon multiplied guilt. Finally, his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his own house. But the people of the land killed the conspirators against King Ammon, and the, king, and the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. We'll turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and read verses 1 through 11. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now do you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation, Psalm 130. <clears throat> Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us, and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. 
His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and with the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection from the dead and life in the world to come. Amen. This is a creed to talk about one God. Manasseh learns something in all of his sin and his uh, judgment, and he learns that Yahweh is God. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we are told by the Apostle Paul that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. Say it with me. Jesus is Lord. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we now we come to your word and we thank you that we can hold it in our hands and we are grateful that we can read it, meditate on it, and think about it. And we're grateful that you entrust it to us as a church, that we might be the pillar and the support of the truth. So guide us and direct us, and as Jesus prayed, sanctify us in your word. Your word is truth. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And before him there, were, there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his mind according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. However, Yahweh did not turn from his fierce, the fierceness of his great wrath, which his, his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocation with which Manasseh had provoked him. And Yahweh said, I will remove Judah also from my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off, I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said, My name shall be there forever. This was written out of 2 Kings with respect to Josiah. Now hear this from Jeremiah. Then Yahweh said to me, Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be, my heart would not be with this people Send them away from my presence and let them go. And it will be said that when they say to you, Where should we go? Then you are to say to them, Thus says Yahweh. Those destined for death to death and those destined for the for the sword to the sword, and those destined for famine to famine, 
and those destined for captivity to captivity. And I shall appoint over them four kinds of dooms, declares Yahweh, Yahweh, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag off, and the birds of the sky, and the beasts of the field to devour and to destroy. And I shall make them an object of horror among all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. We come to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. We're, we're in the slide for home now. 33, 34, 35, 36. And I'll never teach again. We come to Manasseh. And Manasseh is first found in Genesis chapter 41. Manasseh is the name that Joseph gave to his firstborn son, and it means made to forget. God has made me to forget my home. Now he's got his own family. So when we come to Manasseh, we're thinking about this idea of cause to forget. And that's exactly what King Manasseh did when he came to the throne. He caused Israel to forget Yahweh, their God. In Kings, it says he seduced them away. In Chronicles, it says he misled them. But when you come to the life of Manasseh, you come to an interesting problem. Because if you read about Manasseh in 2 Kings chapter 21, and we just read from 23 about the life of Josiah and how Josiah is not going to help reverse things because of what Manasseh did. When you read about Manasseh in chapter 21 of 2 Kings, there is no repentance, there is no humility. He's just a nasty prig. And that's the way Kings deals with him. So, right away we have to say, well, now, how come Chronicles deals with him differently? Because Chronicles deals with him in the first half with all the same nastiness. And then the second half of the account, when he was taken away with hooks, we'll talk about that in a minute, to Babylon by the king of Assyria, he humbled himself and he entreated the Lord. And the Lord was entreated by him and brought him back and set him up as king again. That causes commentators to pull out their hair. Because over here, just nastiness. And over here, nastiness but forgiven. And it's a record. How is that? Well, so a lot of scholars and a lot of commentators decide that Chronicles is just derived from the thinking and the purpose of the chronicler, but is not factual. Of course, we're not going to take that attitude. We're going to say on one hand, Kings has one purpose, and in his one purpose, he only wants to show the terrible things that Manasseh did and what we just read in 2 Kings chapter 23 and in Jeremiah chapter 15, it truly is terrible because it was from Manasseh that there was no room for repentance anymore. Oh, it's going to still move on another 100 years or so, maybe not quite 100 years, but God's not going to change his mind because of this fellow, Manasseh, because of what he did. But the chronicler has a different purpose. And the chronicler's purpose, remember the chronicler is writing after the Babylonian captivity, writing chronicles in Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Kings is a record about the Kings, we don't know exactly when it's written, but we have a better idea when Chronicles is written. And he's writing his record to help the people as they reemerge from captivity, go back to Jerusalem, build the temple, and live for Yahweh. And so in his purpose, he wants to show something about Yahweh that these people need to hear, that is, Yahweh forgives. So when you think about uh, this then, just we, we read it. It's a, it's a simple record. When you think about it, there are, well, there's lots of things that can be said, but there are two things to remember. Number one is, if one humbles himself before the Lord, God forgives. And it's interesting because Paul himself said, this is a trustworthy statement. Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am chief. Well, he was the chief sinner in his own mind because he persecuted Christ by persecuting Christ's people and putting them to death. And God forgave him. When you take all of the kings of Judah, there's no one worse than Manasseh. You look at the record there and you say, wow, this fella is a piece of work and it's not going to work out. But when he humbles himself, God forgives him. That's the first thing. And of course, in this room, we all need to hear that. And we need to consider the life of Manasseh in detail within our own minds. We're not going to talk a lot about it here today. You can read the record there and say, my goodness, what kind of God is this? When a man does all of this, he will even forgive him. That's the God we serve. That's point number one. Point number two is, okay, some people might think, as Paul says to us in Romans chapter 6, let, let us not sin that, that grace may abound. Some people may think, well, yeah, I can go out and I can do exactly what I want to. And after all, in the end, if I humble myself, God will forgive me. But notice, Manasseh, we have to accept that he truly was humble. We'll talk about the word in just a minute. He truly was humble. And he truly was forgiven. And he did attempt to set things in order once he was returned to the throne. But his sin had consequences that were not going to be erased. So, it's possible to forgive someone. God can forgive us. But the natural consequences that come from our sin, they're not going to change. So, if a kid gets in a car and goes out and finds his or her buddies and they go out drinking and they get drunk and then they're speeding along and the car hits a tree and someone in the car dies... Can they be forgiven? The answer is yes. But the life that's lost will not be restored, and one will live with that for the rest of his life. So over here is Manasseh, who caused Israel to go astray. And in the causing to go astray, he changed the hearts of the people. So that once he started cleaning up his act, taking away all the altars that he made, taking away the Asherah and the Asherim, and uh, cleaning up the temple. Once he did that, he didn't take down the high places, and the people went back to worshiping at the high places. The very thing God told them not to do. He changed their heart. So, God forgives, but there are abiding 
consequences. The word humble, I think Caleb mentioned it last week or the week before, I can't remember. The word humble is used hmm, a lot of times in Kings and Chronicles, particularly Chronicles. It's found in, in other Old Testament books as well. And uh, we see it, for example, in the life of David, more along the lines of subduing somebody. So, for example, in Second, uh, First Chronicles chapters 18 through 20, where we go through all these different wars, we looked at it. David subdued his foes. It's the same word. He subdued them. He caused them to have to submit to him. And he drew a line, and he killed one, and he kept the other alive. He killed one, he kept the other alive, and he sawed some in half. He subdued them. He made them subject to him. Okay? So when we say we translate it humble, and uh, by the way, in the Hebrew, you can see how to translate it because you have, you have uh, different, different uh, stems one means to cause, and one means something different, even though the word is the very same word. So if you, if you subdue somebody, you cause them to be humbled. You go to battle, you want to subdue your enemies. You want them to submit to you and to whatever you say because you're the victor. That's what David did. But when you humble yourself, it's not simply talking about, oh, how you think of yourself up in your head. You know, I'm really a humble guy. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not proud. I humble myself. No. The way to ask yourself if you're humble is, are you submissive? In other words... Do you voluntarily, by the command of the Lord, submit yourselves to those that the Lord says you should obey? That's humble. Well, that's not quite humble because you could submit with gritted teeth and you haven't quite gotten there yet. But if you submit under the command of the Lord like to a king with uh, happiness, then you're a humble person. In Manasseh's case, he humbled himself so that he was restored to his throne, and on his throne, he turned from serving all these other gods back to his God, Yahweh God, because he came to know that Yahweh is God. Now, why would you serve other gods? It's because you think they can do something for you. And that's what he was thinking. He would get something out of them that he's not getting out of Yahweh God. And so what he did in Jerusalem is he set up all these altars and he brought all these altars into the temple complex with its lower court and its raised court where the bronze altar was. And he set up all these altars all around in the temple complex for the host of heaven, the very commandment, the second commandment, that we're not to make something to try to get an image of God, like in the sun or the moon. And so he served the host of heaven. He's got these altars with some kind of image of the sun and the moon and the stars that you can see, the planets, and he's bowing down to them and asking them for things. That's what he's doing. And he is not consulting the prophets. Instead, he has mediums. Mediums on the, on the temple complex and spiritists to consult with the dead to get the answers that he's looking for. And he's doing divination and sorcery. All this because Yahweh God isn't supplying or doing or being whatever it is that Manasseh wants him to be. So he's set all this up. But that's not the worst of it. He set up altars for the Baals, and he made Asherim, which means plural Asherah, 
and uh, one bale for one Asherah. And the bales were carved out of stone, a pillar. You can understand what that means. And the Asherah were carved out of wood, and they're set side by side, and you bow down, and you worship, and you call on them, and they are the god and goddess of fertility and fecundity. Ah, the nation will grow if we worship these gods. But what Manasseh did is he set up in the courtyard and around Jerusalem these bales and these Asherahs, and then in God's house. And I take it this is what it must mean. In the very holy place, he went in where God's throne is. He's enthroned above the cherubim. That's where he places his name. And in the holy of holies, he put a carved image and said to God, here is your consort. This man is a wicked man. And by all of this, he misled the people from monotheism to this whole pantheon of gods where Yahweh, the Lord God, is just one God among many gods. That's what Manasseh did. Now, it's interesting. Turn, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 21. Verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Hephzibah. Now, in Chronicles, you come down to the end. All the way through, he's giving the names of the mothers of the kings. But when you get down to the end, he quits doing that. And he doesn't do it in Second Chronicles, chapter 33, for Manasseh. We're not told his name. In Kings, I mean his mother's name. In Kings, we're told his mother's name. Now, turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah chapter 62. For Zion's sake, I will not be quiet. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet quiet until her righteousness goes forth like the brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning and the nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you will be called by a new name which which the mouth of Yahweh will give to you you will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of Yahweh and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will, any, will no, anyone no longer say desolate, but you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land will be married. For Yahweh delights in you, and uh, Yahweh delights in you, and, uh, well, I can't read it, so we'll stop there. We've already made the point. That's what Hephzibah means. My delight is in 
you. So in Kings, the mother's name is given, but Manasseh has caused the people to forget Yahweh God, so the king's mother's name is worthless because God's delight, as we have read, is no longer in her. Instead, he's going to cast her off. He's going to wipe her off a dish like one washes a dish and cast her away, it's said in another place. Hepzibah, my delight is in you. So you see now we have, we have Manasseh and we have his mother and they're put with names that fit what fits what's going on. But that's to be applied to God then. God is Yahweh God, and Jerusalem, Judah, is Hepzibah. My delight is in you. You're my crown. You're my wife. You're my glory. But this is taken away by Manasseh. And so Manasseh comes back to town, and Manasseh starts his uh, project to recover all the damage that he's done. And so he gets all of his uh, altars out and his idols out, and he throws them out, and presumably they're thrown into the Kidron Valley. They're going to be brought back by his son. They're thrown into the Kidron Valley. And uh, he sets up the altar on the mountain of the Lord, Mount Moriah, in the proper place. He puts the bronze altar back up, and he offers thank offerings and fellowship offerings. And so when we think about the offerings that are offered, you have the sin offering. You have the sin offering, and then you have the ascension offering. You have the tribute offering, and then you have the peace offering. So when the first offerings have been done, that's when you come to to peace with God, reconciliation with God. And those peace offerings come in three different types, and he offers the, the fellowship offering and the thank offering. And the thank offering is when you, when you want something from God, you promise to do something for God if he will listen to you. And God did listen to him, and he promised, I'm sure we're not told, he promised that he would go back and straighten things out. So he offers a thank offering, and he offers a fellowship offering, which means he has damaged all of these people. And so now he has peace with God because God has forgiven him. And so he's going to invite everyone to the fellowship offering, and he's going to tell the people what God has done. This is what he's doing. He became king when he was 12. Well, some start younger, but of course, at 12, you have no sense. You have no wisdom. You have no experience. And uh, when you read the commentators, you will discover as people are trying to work out the timeline of Judah and Israel that there are kings that overlap. So there's a, a co-regency. And it just so turns out that probably at 12 years old, he reigned with Hezekiah, his father, for 10 years. We know when Hezekiah died. So when, he, when Hezekiah dies and he's 22 and he's on his own, that's when all of this begins to transpire. And it lasts for quite some time. Uh, we can't tell for sure but it was maybe only in the last five years of his reign, and he reigned 55 years, including the 10 years of co-regency with his father. In the last five years, maybe the last 10 years, he humbled himself, said to God, I will submit to you, and begin to straighten things out. That's kind of the timeline. Now, God becomes angry with him. And uh, God does get angry 
not so much like we get angry. His anger is a holy, just anger, and it's not a fly-off-the-handle kind of an anger. And we're told he's slow to anger. And so this worship, well, it's been going on for some time, and then God has had enough of it. And so what does he do? He causes the army of the king of Assyria to come against Jerusalem, and they come and they take Manasseh captive. They bind him in binds. They put brass iron around him. We're going to see the same thing when we get to chapter 36 in conjunction with uh, Jehoiakim, I think it is. And they, <coughs> they put hooks in him. Now, the hooks could be metaphorical. That is, they're reeling him in and dragging him off like a fish. That could be the case, except we have records of what happens and what they would do to certain prisoners that they would capture is they would take a long piece of iron and stick it all the way through to the other side open his mouth and stick it through his cheeks to the other side and it would be curved around and what do you suppose they did with it that's right they pulled him with it they would pull him make him go and you know how it is when you're, when you're the, you know, the guy on top, <laughs> you're going to take advantage of it. And so they drag him to Babylon where he's bound in chains and he's in a lot of pain. And this is when he becomes humble. Well, all of us are a bit like that. Maybe not to that degree, that is. We might claim to be humble. We're probably not as humble as we think we are. But we're forced to be humble when pain is inserted into our lives. Well, it could be pain that's inserted because of sin that we've committed, where God is using some kind of pain to wake us up. It could be that, and we're humbled. Or it could just be not because we've committed some specific sin, but God just knows we need humbling and he uses circumstances that maybe are embarrassing or painful and he humbles us. And then we're ready to think a little more. Well, that's what happened to Manasseh, but of course his pain was massive so the record on Manasseh split into two halves the first half is all about his sin the second half is about his humility he was humbled and he came back and then he sets the temple in order and what else does he do well he starts a building project and we've seen this through the kings when God is blessing somebody, they build. And what do they build? Well, they build fortified cities and they arm them. And in Manasseh's case, he's building a second wall around the portion of Jerusalem and the city of David. It's quite a long portion. And the wall is very tall. And what is it for? Well, it's for fortification. Your one is trying to protect the city is what they're doing. Turn, if you would, to Song of Solomon, chapter 8. We've read this before. I want to read it again. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, because uh, sometimes uh, we just need a, a little a prod to think more broadly in the Scriptures than maybe we've been accustomed to doing. It says in verse 6, Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flames are the flames of fire, the very fire of Yahweh. 
So love's really strong. And uh, Solomon's got it bad for the Shulamite. And uh, they're, dis they're describing the kind of love they have. And a proper Christian love should be intense and it should be jealous. Because one, particularly the man now, is protecting his bride. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. Yeah, of course. Nobody's love can be bought, not, not real love. And then, here, here's what we read before. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we shall build on her battlements of silver. But if she is a door, we shall barricade her with planks of cedar. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. Well, of course, a woman is flesh and bones. She's not towers and walls. And so you see something's going on in the Song of Solomon uh, that is speaking of a woman in a particular way or speaking of something else altogether. And let me suggest there are many layers in the Song of Solomon. And one of the layers, which is the one we tend to focus on the most, is the layer of Solomon with his new wife. And that's appropriate. But there's another layer, and that other layer has to do with Yahweh and his wife, only it's written in uh, Jerusalem temple language. And in this Jerusalem temple language, God's wife is compared to a walled city. And you see that when you come to the end of the Bible and you get into the last chapter of Revelation, and the angel says, come, let me show you the wife of the lamb. And John goes with him, and he sees a bride adorned coming down out of heaven. And then there's this description of this, this fabulous city. And this city is 1,500 miles cubed and it has 12 gates around it and 12 foundation stones that are these costly stones. And at each gate is one huge pearl and there's an angel, a messenger at each gate. And it's hard to figure it all out. There's a the river of water. And as someone pointed out, that probably means it starts at the top, like in the Garden of Eden. And as it comes down in, I'm above the Garden of Eden, as it comes down in Eden, it divides into four rivers. This one comes down and divides into 12 rivers. And it flows out the gates, but there's a messenger, a guard there, with these walls that are 144 yards thick. This is a well-fortified city. So, in Song of Solomon, if a man is to find peace in a woman, she has to be a woman of discretion who's been fortified and the walls of the city have not been toppled. That's the picture. When Manasseh goes back to Jerusalem, and he is set back on his throne. He goes into a building project. And the building project is to go out to all the fortified cities and put commanders there so that this kind of intrusion won't happen again and to make the wall out further and taller so 
the city Jerusalem cannot be penetrated. That's a good thing for a king to do, to protect his interests and the people's interests. But of course, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because Manasseh didn't protect the people's interests. Now he's putting up a wall to give them physical security. But he's the very one that breached the wall to give them spiritual insecurity. And now because of what he's done, he cannot fix the problem. And so that's, a, that, that's a, just a, a huge thing to think about. And, and you have a man, and, and how do you deal with this? God comes to you and says, you're forgiven, but you know from what God has said through the prophets, this is not going to change. Now this city is lost. It's going to go into ruin. Well, of course, there's that prophecy in Isaiah that once again, when the redemption work is done, this city will be named Hephzibah. God will say, Oh, yeah. She's been washed clean. She's been forgiven. The walls are up. The towers are on top of the walls. The woman is a woman of discretion. And what do I find in her? Well, I find shalom, peace. Well, our marriages, of course, are supposed to look like that. But this is what God's marriage looks like. And that's what he's going to make happen. That's what he does make happen in the death of Christ on the cross for all the sins of the years gone by of Jerusalem. And and Israel is restored, restored in a greater, broader, bigger fashion as you trace through the Bible. Because when you come to the end, it's not... Don't worry, I'm about done. It's it's not Israel over here, God's people, and another people over here, God's other people. No. You can't read your Bible right if you're thinking that way. No. It's one big city with Jesus Christ, the true Israelite. In Ephesians 2, the cornerstone. And the other foundation stones are the apostles. And you get to Revelation, and you have 12 foundation stones that are apostles, and you have 12 gates, which are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a city made up of Jew and Gentile. In fact, it's such a city made up of Jew and Gentile, there is no more Jew and Gentile. There just is. And that's what we are now. We just are. Well, this is what Manasseh was tearing down this is what God is restoring we're part of that restoration process and when Jesus says if I go I'll prepare a place for you and I'll come again so that you can be where I am in my father's house there aren't many mansions that's not the word It's the word abiding places. There are many abiding places. So Jesus goes, but he's not up in heaven right now with a router and tools hammering this city together. No, the going was the going to the cross. How does he make it possible? Because he goes to the cross, and there he dies for people's sins People like Manasseh and their sin. When one comes in faith with humility, yes, Lord, I trust you. And mind you, we've narrowed it down to this little narrow gospel. I trust what you did on the cross. Oh, I'm good to go. No! Trust doesn't mean I believe what you did on the cross and there I am, I'm good. No, trust means I trust Okay, so the point in the chapter then is 
Here God brought Israel out of Egypt into this new place. He built there his house for his people to come and meet with him. He put his name there and his intention was that Israel would never wander again. And they could accomplish this by keeping the law. Now, we've grown up with such a tradition that's such a naysayer of the law that that's a hard thing to handle. He's certainly not talking about salvation by works. He's talking about people who look in, in the law here in, in the section we're looking at, the law, the commandments, the statutes, all that good stuff, is the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is fabulous, absolutely outstanding. And here's where you can test your faith. You open the law and you read it from one end to the other. And then you say, okay, would I subject myself to that? Am I that humble to submit to this law? Well, the law certainly has changed some. But when the promise is made in Jeremiah, picked up in Hebrews, and started, I might add, in Ezekiel. The new covenant didn't start with Christ. It started before Christ. If you read Ezekiel 36, you can figure that out. And what law was it then that God is promising to put right up here and right in here. It's the Mosaic law with variation, summed up in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you can't have this one and not this one, and you can't have this one and not this one. If you, don't love, if you love God, you will love fellow believers. If you don't love God, you won't love fellow believers. If you think you love fellow believers, that means you're, you have to be loving God. They go exactly together. One can't be without the other. And if you don't believe me, just read 1 John chapters 4 and 5. You'll discover that's exactly what it says. The one who loves God and says, I hate, the one who says he loves God and hates his brother, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. No, they go right together. Well, our time is gone. I hope it's made some sense to you. Two things to remember. When we sin, God will forgive us, but there are consequences that affect us and other people. Best not to go there. Second thing, trust. Humility means, oh, God I trust you enough to do what you say. Now, that's the very thing that's said about Ammon. That is, he did all that his father did and the bad stuff, but the one good thing his father did, he didn't do. He didn't humble himself. So both of them died, and they got buried with this record of evil, and it doesn't say it here, but it says it in Kings that they were buried in their own house where there was a graveyard called Uzzah. What did Uzzah do? Well, there was an ark on a, on, a, on a donkey cart, and it was wobbling, and he reached out and touched it, and boom, he was dead just like that because he encroached on the holy. And that's what these two guys did. They went right into the holy place and set up a carved figure for Baal, only not for Baal, for Yahweh. And so you can't find a worse king in all of Scripture. I, I didn't read it, but they'll, they're, the measuring line in one passage is Ahab. The measuring line is Samaria. In other words, Oh, everything up there in Israel, that's all, that's all wicked. But right down here in Judah is the worst man. The worst man. 
and he humbled himself and he was forgiven. Let's stand and pray. Father, what can we say to such a tremendous passage where your love for your people is displayed like a good father you discipline your children but like a good father because of the death of Christ you forgive your children even when we've been horribly wicked and so I pray across this auditorium if there is guilt in someone's life that they would humble themselves before you and experience the forgiveness that comes from you where they're accepted in the beloved. Help us, Father, to go grow in trust where we trust you to say, yeah, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to humble myself before the mighty hand of God and I'm going to cast all my care on you. When I look at your word and it says, oh, if I do this, what's going to happen? I'm going to trust you. Let's we pray in Christ's name. Amen.